Welcome to PMA Takes on Tech, the podcast that explores the problems, solutions, people, and ideas that are shaping the future of the produce industry. I'm your host, Bonnie Estes, Vice President of Technology for the Produce Marketing Association, and I've spent years in the ag tech sector. So I can attest, it's hard to navigate this ever-changing world in developing and adopting new solutions to industry problems. Thanks for joining us and for allowing us to serve as your guide to the new world of produce and technology. My goal of the podcast is to outline a problem in the produce industry and then discuss several possible solutions that can be deployed today. This season of PMA Takes on Tech is brought to you by Plenty. Plenty is an indoor vertical farm that sustainably grows produce using less water and land than traditional farming and no pesticides or GMOs. The farm is able to grow peak season, flavorful food year round and deliver fresh produce to its retail partners daily. Plenty's proprietary towers and intelligent platform make it the only vertical farm that can grow multiple crops with consistently superior flavors and yield. Hello, you are going to love my conversation with Sonia Lowe. Sonia is an indoor farmer, a chef, an angel investor, and a mother of two who speaks seven languages and holds a third degree black belt in Taekwondo. Sonia has over 32 years of combined agriculture, technology, and business experience. In the industry, Sonia was CEO of Crop One Holdings, Inc., a vertical farming company that owns Freshbox Farms and a joint venture with Emirates Flight Catering in Dubai. Most recently, Sonia was the CEO of Sensei Ag, an ag tech company focusing on CEA founded by Larry Ellison in Hawaii. Sonia was appointed one of the Global 100 Technology Pioneers at the World Economic Forum two years in a row and named one of Management Today's leading 35 businesswomen in the UK under the age of 35. This conversation goes where most do not in indoor ag, with Sonia's unique experience and view of the industry. We spend time on business models and financing, which are huge issues in CEA right now. But we also talk a lot about the political economy of CEA, the problems with lack of diversity, creating an ecosystem, and how the industry needs to openly monitor, share, and compare data on cost structure and carbon footprint. So fun. Check it out. Let's drop into the conversation with Sonia. Welcome, Sonia. So tell us about your background and your journey in controlled environment agriculture. Uh, thanks, Bonnie, for having me. It's great to see you again. Um, so I generally refer to myself as the world's unlikeliest lady farmer <laughs> because I uh, came into vertical farming uh, because I'd invested in a vertical farming venture. Um, and uh, became uh, the ultimate inactive investor when uh, I ended up stepping into a venture as interim CEO. Uh, and then the interim title fell away two years later. <laughs> and then six and a half years later, I was still the CEO of that venture. Um, and then I was recruited away by uh, a wonderful uh, 
venture that was looking to transform human wellness, uh, founded by Larry Ellison, he of Oracle fame, and uh, Dr. David Agus, uh, a world-famous oncologist and scientist. So, um, you know, my journey in CEA has been varied uh, between vertical farms, greenhouses of multiple form factors, uh, different geographies, and um, uh, a widely varying capital mix, uh, as well as crop mix. So what about vertical farming as you first started getting into it? What, what drew you to it from some of the other things you did before? And, and what kind of got your passion aroused for uh, vertical farming? So um, the kind of food value chain has always interested me. Um, After the sale of my first venture, I ended up actually going to culinary school and being a chef. Yeah, (laughs) being a chef in London for two years, which I absolutely adored. Um, It's probably the hardest job I've ever had in my life. You know, you're up at the crack of dawn, you're sourcing ingredients, you're thinking through the day's menus. Um, and then you're still on your feet at 11 o'clock at night. But I loved it. Um, have just adored, you know, feeding people. Um, and, you know, being in Europe for 20 years, uh, there is such a focus on the food supply chain about eating locally, eating seasonally um, and using those wonderful ingredients. Um, and, you know, that sort of uh really became part of my DNA. And um, when I moved back to the U.S., the kind of very long supply chain, the fact that 40% of post-consumer food is thrown away because it is spoiled um, or people think it's spoiled, um, there is, uh, there's so much about our, our food supply chain that doesn't work, right? And I don't think it's going to be tenable to feed 10 billion people on the planet in the mm-hmm. next 30 years. Um, so when I looked at vertical farming and the potential for basically climate agnostic growing, um, I thought, wow, this is amazing. Uh, and of course, all entrepreneurs in vertical farming represent a set of unit economics, which are aspirational. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Uh, And over the last eight and a half, nine years, um, I haven't seen that much that has moved the unit economics. Uh, I keep hearing of, you know, improved yields through the use of automation. I keep hearing of, you know, uh, better energy optimization. But um, ultimately, I think we have to figure out uh, a path to profitability for vertical farming. Um, uh, Otherwise, this industry is going to remain very interesting and niche, but um, it's not really going to overcome the energy balances, right? Yeah, definitely. is a challenge. Um, I'd like to talk a bit about business models and finance, um, financing. And this is, uh, these are areas that you're uniquely qualified to speak about from your numerous industry leadership roles and background in markets and investing. So with a lot of the companies um, that we're talking about, um, there's a lot of outside investment. So there's always a need for an exit. Um, we've had some high profile SPACs and some IPOs. Can you talk about this and what's working and what's not working around investing exits and business models? 
Oh, gosh. Well, uh, exits are always a little bit of a crystal ball exercise, right? Um, and I don't have one. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> I do think that um, SPACs are here to stay uh, as an instrument. Uh, and I think they are important. But I think that, um, you know, for early stage companies uh, or essentially pre-revenue companies to be going to market through a SPAC uh, is a very difficult, very difficult path because, you know, for SPAC arrangers to uh, get their money back and for the underwriter to get their money back, the target has to be uh, two or three X the value of the cash. Um, and while, you know, venture valuations and private uh, have their own rationale, I think when you play that out in the public market, it can become very uncomfortable. Um, and I think that that sort of uh, rationality is behind um, some of the more recent uh, failures to merge uh, that we've witnessed, right? Um, and, you know, I think that the private capital markets are efficient. I think they're good at understanding what the risks are and playing out the governance that needs to happen with some of these earlier stage companies in the private world is far better to do than doing so on a public stage, right? Um, and, uh, you know, I, I think that um, in terms of venture capital, Venture capital, at least in the vertical farming area, has to be very crisp, haha, pun intended, right? Uh, about the segregation of the real asset, which is the farm, from the technology assets and the technology investment that it's making. Um, how you start to actually monetize that technology is as of yet unclear, right? Because nobody per se um, is actually selling the technology, right? They're not selling a robot. They're not selling an automation line. They're not selling, I mean, the, the initial foray into this was lighting, right? Oh, you know, uh -huh. we've got another set of LED lights that are somehow going to improve your yield. Some tiny percentage hasn't turned out to be true. Um, you know, lighting is uh, a cost-based analysis for most vertical farmers. Um, so I think, I hope that the venture return um, from all of this capital is going to come from more than uh, the real asset that they have invested in to date, which is the farms. Um, because if you look at the ROI on these farms, even with full automation, uh, even with uh, you know great energy optimization and chasing a two to three or six cents a kilowatt hour uh, energy profile, the returns are still in the nice private equity level returns. You know, maybe mid teens, low twenties. They're not eighty, ninety, right? Um, so, uh, I think that segregation, the trajectory, the monetization of the technology is going to be incredibly important for that venture promise to come true. 
Yeah, I think one thing I'd be interested in your thought on on the SPACs. I um, spent a lot of years in industrial biotech, and and one of the things I'm watching is some of those companies uh, going public through SPACs, and then some of the other companies, um, not just indoor farms, that have got used SPACs um, that are more in biology, and it's more on yeah. you know technology that's not proven yet. And I just wonder, you know, if if uh, investors it just seems like that's hard for investors to kind of understand. And so you see these companies IPO through a SPAC and then, and then it, the stock tanks when people start looking at, well, you don't really have any revenues, you know, or you're not going to make any revenues. Yeah. And so is it just a different, you know, I wonder it's a different kind of investment thesis that people aren't making, you know, cereal or tables or cars or something. They're actually making something that, it, you know, it doesn't have revenue yet and it is kind of on the come. And is that, is a public market the right place for that to play out? So, uh, you know, biotech is certainly not my area of expertise, but I uh, am familiar enough with companies that are no revenue, but, you know, high growth, high impact. Um, and I think that if the management of investor expectations is consistent, right, which is no, we don't have revenue, no profit is not a target. Um, and what we're building is an enzyme, we're building a biological process, we're building a biological platform. Um, and that's what your capital is going to do. I think there are enough exit models, which is essentially you build enough of the science that it becomes a viable proof point for one of the major uh, biotech companies to buy you out, right? Um, you know, is a publicly traded stock an easier and uh, more valuable way for a major to buy you out? Um, yeah, maybe, right? I just don't think we, we've seen that. Yeah. Um, and then the problem is that these are all micro cap or mid cap companies when they come to the market. And, you know, 80% of your shares value when you are a micro cap is external. It has nothing to do with your intrinsic uh, value. So um, you're going to get tossed around like a little boat in the ocean. Uh -huh. uh, and I think that's also very hard for uh, management teams that are not accustomed to navigating in the public markets. Um, so there are kind of learning curves for everybody. Uh, but I think, again, SPACs are here to stay. I think they're a valuable instrument. Um, and, um, you know, I think that uh, there will be good uh, targets to, um, to bring to market. So back to um, CEA and just looking at what what business models and financing could work better. I think you know funding a farm with IPO money or even venture money is a pretty expensive way to fund a farm, and you wouldn't do that if you were growing outside. So is it you know should we be looking more at project financing, or are there are there different ways to kind of fund the growth of this industry that that might put us in a better position? I think the industry has to move to project financing. Otherwise, you know, you're only going to see four farms out there. <laughs> um, I think, you know, these are big, heavy lifting machines. They are even greenhouses, you know, greenhouses can 
certainly be cheap and cheerful, um, you know, if they are the kind of low cost uh, hoop houses. But those, of course, don't work all over the country and they certainly don't work year round. Um, so your kind of cost per square foot of a vertical farm or something where the climate is controllable, uh, let's say sort of within 80 percent variability, then, um, you know, these ticket sizes get large. And uh, for the average farmer, they're well out of the reach of the average farmer. Um, so, and there also isn't an infrastructure uh, to support, there isn't a financing infrastructure or a logistical infrastructure that supports indoor growing yet. So, um, you know, I think uh, the sort of opco propco model where there is a technology company, there is an operating management team, sort of like hotel management is the future. I don't see anybody who's done that yet, right, who has built their own farms, uh, proven that they can operate at certain yields and then gone out to other farmers and said, hey, you know, do this. Uh, we'll give you the playbook um, and you go off and be the grower. Uh, I think these sort of the co-op models that have existed uh, thus far with open field growing um, are closest to that, uh, you know, where there's a cooperative of farmers that come together. They each grow, agree to grow within uh, certain seasons. Every got, everybody gets paid, even if there's a crop failure. Um, you know, that's a uh, powerful model in the open field world. I think um, that is probably, uh, you know, because, of course, catastrophic greenhouse failure or catastrophic vertical farm failure does occur. Um, and, um, you know, the, the industry needs to uh, get to the point where it can mitigate that. Um, so I think you will start to see cooperative networks come together. I think you also have to start to look at multi-form factor, right? Because even if you're in a vertical farm and you are ostensibly climate agnostic, you still have to heat and cool that building. You know, you still have to dehumidify the building envelope to the external environment. Um, so there are costs and design engineering, you know, implications to all of that. Um, so again, I think, you know, if we're really aiming for a future where indoor growing is dotting the landscape, uh, I think you have to see a migration to the OPCO-PROPCO model. I think you have to start to see cooperative networks. Um, I think you have to start to see multi-form factor uh, with the you know relevant expertise that needs to happen for that to occur. And then finally, I think you bring along the insurers and uh, the financiers, um, you know, because, again, if indoor growing is going to become a permanent uh, shift in agricultural infrastructure, then, you know, in 10 years, it would be wonderful if we could see indoor farms financed by municipal bond issuance, right? Mm -hmm. We are a long ways off of that, a long ways off of that. Um, and even today with uh, big greenhouse growers, they self-insure because the insurance companies, they say, well, I don't know how to write a policy on a new greenhouse. Oh, interesting. So there's no ecosystem you know? really to support no. this whole industry yet. 
Interesting. Not yet. Not yet. Which is why, you know, it's amazing and terrific that venture capital has taken the first step to finance this. But, you know, it's a, you know, we're going to build a machine. That machine is going to be very precise. We're going to be able to speak to the risk parameters of all of those, um, those machines. And we're going to adopt these machines across the landscape until one of the machines doesn't work. Yeah. Right. Um, so, uh, you know, when I first started out in this industry, you know, now almost nine years ago, I said, I reached out to my fellow CEOs across the landscape and I said, you know, I think we have to share information. I think we have to share data because otherwise all of us are going to be in these silos of venture capital. And how did that, uh, I was how did that go? <laughs> I was met with a wall of silence. <laughs> um, and, um, I, I, you know, I started my life many, many, many years ago professionally in uh, telecoms. And uh, in so many ways, it was the perfect grounding for um, understanding the digitization of anything, right? Um, because... Everything is predicated on I's and O's. Uh, as I said to my first big media boss, uh, you know, three decades ago. Um, and with agriculture, the digitization has to have a point. And the point is not just improved yield and, you know, the ability to see an aphid on a leaf. The digitization really is because you're driving the lowering of risk. Um, and then once you've lowered risk or you can quantify risk adequately and in a way that is transparent, then you're kind of off to the races, right? But these are big machines. And I think what it really means as well is that these are natural oligopolies. Uh, hmm. You know, we spoke earlier about biotech, right? Biotech has 10 major companies in it and a bunch of tiny startups because it takes that much money to actually get a product to market. Um, with telecoms, why have we gone through the breakup of AT&T back to AT&T, <laughs> right? And yeah. only four major telcos. Oh, well, cable. Why do we only have like four cable choices? I mean, cable is effectively a monopoly. Um, and it's because the heavy lifting required of infrastructure essentially settles into a natural oligopoly. And I think that the same is going to be true of digitized agriculture. There are going to be 10 competitors, uh, all of whom make uh, good profit, not super normal profits, but good profit, um, and where they have borne uh, the cost of uh, digitizing the risk of making the risk transparent. And then they uh, basically have that share of the market. Well, do you think those those companies will be actually producers or will they be the developers of the technology that then gets either licensed or sold or whatever to people? Because the actually production is never where you make the money. I mean, it's hard to make money in producing food. And so it, who, it, when you say there's going to be like four companies, what part of the chain will they be in, do you think? I, I think there'll be more than four companies. I think there will be, you know, because food and agriculture is such an enormous uh, value chain. Um, I think 
it will be possible to make money at every step of the way. Hmm. So um, I think it'll be more akin to the hotel industry. So, you know, there will be the big brands like the Four Seasons, the Ritz-Carlton's, and their playbook and uh, their brand gets issued to a variety of smaller hotel owners who own the property. But the property owners make their money, too. Okay. So you see it that it'll be set up that that people will be able to make money in the chain. Yeah. Yeah, because I think if you look at what's happened with some of these more, you know, you squeeze the grower model, uh, right, where you own the germplasm, you own the seedling, you provide the grower with the seedling, and then you become the only market for that grower after they've grown the product. The grower has seen their margins collapse from 30% to three. And at some point, people go, I don't want to grow for you anymore. I can make more money being an independent grower and selling my stuff directly. And that's also the great kind of liberation of vertical farming, right, is I don't want to be part of your squeeze me uh, distribution and packing play anymore. I actually am going to go direct to consumer. I'm going to go direct to retailer. Um, And that's what has shook, you know, has shaken up uh, Salinas. Um, They don't believe the unit economics yet. And so every time I speak to one of the big packers, uh, you know, they all go, yeah, it's pretty niche still, but they're keeping a keen eye on it. That's for sure. Yeah. And what one of the things that I'm watching and kind of wondering how it's going to play out is, you know, I think a lot of our growers um, and producers in places like Salinas or Florida, like that, that's what they do. And they kind of own a part of the supply chain. As we have more climate problems, like here in California, less water, those producers are, are going to want to mitigate Wildfire. their risk. Yeah, exactly. Smoke, yeah. you know. And they're going to want to mitigate their risk. And so you are starting to see some of the big producers, the Salinas type producers start to get interested in this. And so I want, I'm really curious of how this is going to play out is if more of the really large uh, producers, packer shippers in Salinas are going to say, okay, I want to mitigate my risk and, and get into indoor. And then does that change this this whole kind of infrastructure thing and, and ecosystem that we were talking about do they kind of take it over or does um, indoor ag kind of create its own? I mean, this is all speculation. Neither of us know, but I was just wondering what, what you thought about that. I think right now the valuation between indoor ag and outdoor, uh, the packers, the big packers perspective on their valuation is so vast. Um, there isn't, <clears throat> there isn't anybody willing to cross that chasm. Um, you know, they look at the valuations of these indoor growers that have, you know, a million dollars in revenue and they just go, (laughs) right. I mean, (laughs) that was the sound of me guffawing. Um, (laughs) And, uh, you know, so for right now, uh, I don't think the big packers are likely exits. Um, I think they are potential partners, um, but I think for most indoor growers, they look at what the Packers want them to do, um, which is, you know, kind of set up outside their DCs and let their engineers crawl all over uh, the operation. They're just thinking, well, they're going to watch us do two cycles of this and build their own, right? And then they'll be vertically integrated. And then I'm 
screwed. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, I don't think that's going to be true. I think there are enough bells and whistles now in the more mature indoor growing operators and in the indoor growing technologies that, you know, uh, it's still a two year development cycle. Um, and so I think the Packers are very prudent, excellent business people who at some point will agree that, um, a partnership is the right way to go. Um, mm. And I had a very <clears throat> thoughtful discussion with uh, the CEO and chairman of one of the big packers. And he said, you know, there will be partnerships. The partnerships are going to be where indoor growing has massive strength, like seedling production, right? Um, and I think if you can create a hardened seedling in an indoor growing environment in a vertical farm where you're getting, you know, 98, 99% germination rates and then transplant those to open field, that's a logical and very comfortable fit. Um, you know, I, I think, uh, the cost of, um, open field growing are, there's so much infrastructure around open field growing. You can lease the land, you can lease cold storage, you can, you know, uh, buy occasional time in a packer's line. You can, um, you know, there is already massive investment in automation in the packer that, you know, for an indoor farmer to uh, replicate at the scale of some of the big packers is who knows how long away. Um, so definitely large potential for partnership. Again, as exits, I think the big packers are just going, I can't get my head around evaluation, which is why you also haven't seen so much investment from the big packers into uh, the indoor growers. Um, I think also some of it is geography, right? That the indoor farmers haven't really started in California. They've started on the East Coast where their product is going to be most differentiated. Um, and, you know, it's a big country and it's, you know, two very different business cultures. So you get the smart New Yorkers, you get the smart Bostonians who are doing very well now growing for the Northeast market. Um and California going, yeah, they're kind of not really hurting us yet. Um, now, what's interesting is to see the big greenhouse growers enter the fray, um, you know, because greenhouse production is well known. Uh, there is a full automation suite um, there is uh, a whole financing infrastructure for greenhouses um, if you're buying Dutch. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and, um, you know, I think uh, they are the real competitors to the vertical farms because they can come in at a lower price point. Their product is as good. Um, and I think... Um, you know, the vertical farmers have always taken on this sort of the open field is our competition. But actually, I think greenhouses are their real competition. Oh, interesting. And they are doing more variety, at least for now, they're doing a more variety of products than leafy greens yeah. and, and herbs. And so they can they can do more. So switching a little bit to um, 
looking at the political economy of CEA. And so a lot of people are getting involved in the conversation of saying, we don't really want really rich companies in charge of our food and like who profits from growing this food and, and should there be B Corps and should there be worker ownership? And, and so we don't really put outdoor ag under big outdoor ag out of, under this kind of scrutiny, but I'm just starting to hear these conversations around CEA of really, um, should should the indoor ag vertical farming um, industry be more attuned to workers' rights and um, not controlling our food system in a way that we may not want? Do you have any thoughts on that? On the question of corporate structure, right, which is uh, whether these companies should be B Corps and what that really means um, and worker ownership, Um I think that indoor ag uh, and ag tech probably is one of the greatest potential areas for crossing the political divide. I think it empowers people of all backgrounds. I think it creates a next generation of, uh, you know, knowledge workers. But instead of having to have a degree in computer science, you can have a degree in anything and you cannot have a degree, right? You can come from a background where you are good with your hands um, and have good attention to detail. Um, So I think that it is a amazing entry point uh, to the knowledge economy. Um, Having said that, you know, uh, trying to explain a sort of VC option structure to somebody who works in a farm all day uh, is a challenge, right? So I do think that the well-trodden paths of tech options, probably not the right compensation structure. Um, I think uh, cooperative ownership programs where you've got a collection of growers, yeah, something like that. Right. And each grower then administers their uh, HR according to their own market conditions. Sure. You know, collaborative ownership structures. The question is how far down you push that ownership. I think the issue of B Corp, much murkier. Uh, You know, I'm not sure of whether or not the designation of the B Corp actually certifies you as, as anything. Right. Um, I don't think there is enough knowledge yet across the market of what it means to be a B Corp as a grower or even as an ag tech operator. Um, And um, then I think there is the uh, thornier issue of whether or not indoor ag is actually green. Um, and yes, let's, let's uh, dig into that too. Uh, I definitely wanted to talk to you about just with, uh, that's one of the big selling points of, you know, this is so much more sustainable. Our carbon footprint is great. So I'd love to hear your thoughts on, um, how, how we look at that and how we're measuring it and really kind of keeping ourselves honest in that area. Yeah. So again, I think indoor ag is, uh, all about um, the transformation of energy into calories. And um, unless you have a robust accounting of your energy consumption, 
um, and that conversion into calories, you are going to have a hard time uh, defending your green credentials. Um, and uh, we say, say more about that. How does how does that kind of play out? Yeah. So if your vertical farm is uh, growing on coal fired power, you don't have a green leg to stand on. <laughs> <laughs> Um, and you can argue your, you know, how close you are to the consumer. You can argue the fact that you don't have all these refrigeration miles. You don't have the, you know, but there are numbers out there for what it costs you in terms of carbon output to do open field growing of a leafy green insulinus. There are numbers out there on what it costs you in terms of carbon output to refrigerate that leafy grain and drive it to New York. Um, there are very few numbers around what it costs to move water around, uh, just because that's the kind of awful, dirty little secret. Um, and then uh, there are no numbers right now around what your carbon emissions are if you're depending on the energy source that you're using as a vertical farm. So if you're going to build your own plant, fine, great. But if you're going to build a one ton a day vertical farm growing leafy greens, it's three and a half megawatts of power is required. On a footprint of, you know, now I've seen Leafy green growers uh, at 30,000 square feet, right? So you've got 30,000 square feet of uh, vertical farm growing one ton a day. Phenomenal. Phenomenal land use, right? If you're going to solar power that one ton a day farm, you're going to require 20 acres of land to put the panels. So not a viable land use calculation. Yeah. Right? Um, and so I think the industry has to start to look at combination energy sources, um, you know, and siting. Site selection is going to really matter. Um, greenhouses, of course, not as energy intensive because they're using daylight. But if you get the daylight wrong, uh, then you're never going to develop the bricks that you need. You're going to need supplemental lighting, supplemental lighting. You're going to need supplemental heating and cooling and desiccation. Uh, and whoops, your energy balances go completely out of whack in a greenhouse as well, right? So, um, again, transparency, sharing of information, uh, all of these things may be initially painful, but I think they're necessary if the industry as a whole is going to claim uh, green credentials that are uh, factual. Yeah, and I think a, a lot of companies that I talk to say, you know, it, just the same as kind of some of the cost structure stuff. We're working on it. We're getting there. And I, and I think that's true. I think we need this nascent industry to, to grow and, and improve, but we also need to start having ways to kind of monitor, you know, how it's growing and improving. And so, you know, I can see both with, with cost structures and um, just kind of carbon footprint that, you know, we need to, to work together and share information to kind of understand that. 
One last kind of big area I'd love to touch with you uh, on is just the uh, incredible lack of diversity. And um, we could probably say most of ag, but just focusing on, you know, CEA, we can start there. And um, just looking at founders, investors, board members, C-suite, you know, you can just look across um, the industry and and, uh, we just don't see much diversity. So I'm sure, you know, you are many times the only woman in the room as, as I have been throughout my career, um, what, what can we do? You know, what, um, are there, are there some positive things that, you know, I can do, you can do, the industry can do, um, and how do we kind of change this lack of diversity? Uh, gosh, um, that is a very big question. And I think it's one that is repeated across boardrooms, irrespective of sector, right? Um, and, uh, I think in indoor ag, just the price of entry, uh, whether it's the cost of building a high-tech glass house or whether it's the cost of building a vertical farm means that you are caught up in, uh, the dearth of capital overall that goes to, um, uh, women and, um, you know, non-binary, uh, gender, um, recipients of that capital, um, and, you know, forget people of color, uh, you know, my team (laughs) at one point did a slide of the leadership in ag tech, right? Um, and there was one woman, uh, needless to say, there was only one woman of color, uh, and there was one other brown face on the uh, on the page, um, and uh, you know everybody else was uh, a guy in a Patagonia vest, you know. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so, again, I think this is where um, if you make data transparent, if you make the risk of these farms uh, really more, um, you know, machine driven, uh, then I think it almost doesn't matter who is uh, running the farm. It's like, a, you know, I think you, if you were to dig down into three-star hotel ownership across the country that carry a Hyatt or a Hilton Garden Inn brand, you see a lot of brown and black faces. I mean, I, you know, I think you start to see that these businesses are because they're so well known as businesses and as franchises, um, you know, that uh, the ownership of the asset becomes uh, irrelevant. Now, the playbook for the asset, you know, Hilton or Marriott or, you know, any of these, is it still concentrated in the hands of a few? Yes. But you know what? They bore the risk to kind of get it up to that playbook status where, you know, a hundred room Hilton Garden Inn is a well-known, well-financeable, uh, you know, model, right? We're not there yet with indoor ag. So um, I think the rules of venture capital still apply. And the reality is that, you know, venture capital, 2% of that goes to women. I'm sure some minuscule percentage goes to women of color. Um, so, uh, I don't think you're going to solve the diversity issue through legislation. 
um, because then what happens is that you get capital flight from that. Um, I think you're going to solve it through uh, making the asset category uh, easier to allocate to and, um, you know, by making risk more transparent. Great. Well, before I let you go, um, what is next for you? You're kind of in a transition and I'm excited to hear what, <laughs> what you're thinking about and, and what, what's next for you. Gosh, um, I've accepted a couple of board roles. Uh, I had an existing board role with a private company that is amazing, um, that is uh, a purpose-driven organization um, and on whose board I'm honored to serve. Um, uh, the other two roles are, uh, you know, working in the low carbon economy, which I believe has to become the economy, um, yes. and, uh, working, um, in the design engineering space for indoor ag. Um, and I believe that, you know, again, breakthroughs are going to come from that ability to see across form factors across how people are growing and then apply and share that knowledge. I think the design engineering nexus is, uh, you know, where a lot of this information sharing and knowledge sharing is going to occur. So um, the board roles allow me to keep my hand in right now uh, while I make a decision on sort of what's next. Um, I'm probably not quite ready for it to be a full-time portfolio career, you know, where I serve on five or six different boards, but, you know, it depends on the boards. Right. Um, and then I've had approaches from people who want me to helm something else. Um, I'll make a decision sometime in the early new year. <laughs> <laughs> Watch this space, right? <laughs> well, thank you so much, Sonia, for your, um, insight into the industry. I think you have a, a very unique insight into this young industry um, with a great lens. And I think we touched on a number of things that people don't usually talk about. So I really appreciate your openness and willingness to um, have this conversation. So thank you. That's it for this episode of PMA Takes on Tech. Thanks for allowing us to serve as your guide to the new world of produce and technology. Be sure to check out all our episodes at pma.com and wherever you get your podcasts. Please subscribe, and I would love to get any comments or suggestions of what you might want me to take on. For now, stay safe, eat your fruits and vegetables, and we will see you next time. <laughs>